You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Chapter 8, The Principle of Scalability, Case 7, Lee Scott and Walmart. Rapacious Beermoth, aggressive, bully and evil empire are just some of the public epithets Walmart had acquired by the time Harold Lee Scott Jr. took over as president and CEO in 2000. Fortune magazine said the company had what could be charitably described as an us-versus-them mentality, in which us was Walmart and them was everybody else, from critics to the competition, the government, and yes, sometimes even its own employees. The company's public image as a rapacious beer moth reflected that, they said. Business Week reported a mounting socio-political backlash to Walmart's size and aggressive business practices and urged Walmart to stop the bullying, stop squeezing employees and suppliers and charge customers a little more. The source of all these jibes and accusations can be traced to two killer facts. One, ever since founder Sam Walton opened the company's first store in Arkansas in 1962, Walmart has been all about discount operations, low cost and low price. And two, from its humble beginnings, Walmart mushroomed into the largest company in the world, a $405 billion giant with over 2 million employees serving customers in more than 8,400 retail units under 55 different banners in 15 countries around the world. There is nothing about Walmart that can be described as small other than its prices. And when it comes to price, it's hard to beat Walmart, admits Businessweek, but the everyday low prices come at a high cost to its employees. The result has been dozens of lawsuits brought by employees claiming to be overworked and underpaid, including the mother of all sex discrimination class actions, which alleges the company discriminated against 1.6 million women. In fact, there are two union-funded activist organizations, Wake Up Walmart and Walmart Watch, that exist for the sole purpose of criticizing Walmart, and that's just on labor issues. When it comes to green issues, the name Walmart has always triggered a shudder, says Grist magazine. The company has been charged with exacerbating suburban sprawl, burning massive quantities of oil via its 10,000-mile supply chain, producing mountains of packaging waste, polluting waterways with runoff from its construction sites, and encouraging gratuitous consumption. The litany of alleged sins doesn't end there either putting small companies out of business, maltreating suppliers, offering inferior employee benefits, the list goes on and on. The point is that when Scott took charge, and for at least the first five years of his reign, Walmart was under siege, with a siege mentality to fit. We would put up the sandbags and get out the machine guns, Scott recalls. If somebody criticised us, my first thought was, why don't they like us? Or what could we do to them? Versus how I think now, which is, could the criticism have some truth? Fortune magazine later concluded that Scott had apparently learned 
that the best way to respond to an attacker was not with an attack of one's own, but to embrace them. And embrace them he did, to the extent that his journey to openness, alongside that of Walmart, is today one of the most remarkable leadership stories of our time. So what happened, and why, and how? It seems some of the seminal credit must go to one of Sam Walton's sons and to the NGO Conservation International. Rob Walton, chairman of Walmart's board of directors since 1992, is a lover of the outdoors and found himself in February 2004 on a 10-day trip to Costa Rica, hosted by Peter Seligman, co-founder and CEO of Conservation International. After pointing out the destructive havoc that fleets of fishing boats were wreaking on the delicate Costa Rican marine habitat, legend has it that Seligman looked at the Walmart chairman in the eye and said, we need to change the way industry works, and you can have an influence. Rob was moved and promised to introduce Seligman to Scott. The timing was serendipitous, as Scott had just concluded a review of Walmart's legal and public relations problems, and it wasn't a pretty picture. The discrimination lawsuit had been certified as a federal class action. New stores were blocked by activists in Los Angeles, San Francisco and Chicago, and the company had just forked out millions to regulators for air and water pollution infringements. The findings of two recent studies only made matters worse one that showed that Walmart's spending on health benefits for its employees was 30% less than the average of its retail peers, and another by McKinsey, which concluded that up to 8% of shoppers had stopped patronising the store because of its increasingly tarnished reputation. The watershed meeting took place without fanfare in June 2004, with Rob Walton, Scott Seligman, Glenn Prickett, also of Conservation International, and Jib Ellison, a river rafting guide turned management consultant. Whatever was said, it convinced Scott to dip Walmart's toes into green waters. No doubt it helped that Conservation International's board included former Intel chairman Gordon Moore, BP chief executive John Brown, and former Starbucks CEO Oren Smith, and that Conservation International were already advising Starbucks on fair trade issues and McDonald's on sustainable agriculture and fishing. Whatever the reasons, Scott commissioned Ellison's management consulting firm, Blue Sky, to measure Walmart's total environmental impact. It was a bold move, but it quickly paid off. Blue Sky found that, for example, by eliminating excessive packaging on its Kid Connection private label line of toys, Walmart could save $2.4 million a year in shipping costs, 3,800 trees, and 1 million barrels of oil. And on its fleet of 7,200 trucks, rather than letting the truck engine idle during the driver's mandatory 10-hour breaks, it could save $26 million in fuel costs a year by installing auxiliary power units to heat or cool the cabs. In short, Walmart had belatedly discovered the win-win world of eco-efficiency, which the World Business Council for Sustainable Development had been promoting since 1992. As we headed down this first path in our sustainability journey and started to see these results, we got really excited, recalls Scott. If the truth be told, these initiatives were neither radical 
nor especially high impact in the context of Walmart's global footprint. And Scott could easily have stopped there, having gained the public relations benefits and the easy-picking cost savings. Fortunately, however, fate intervened. On the 29th of August 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit the Louisiana coast and devastated New Orleans. Katrina was one of the worst disasters in the history of the United States, reflected Scott, but it also brought out the best in our company. We responded by doing what we do best. We empowered our people and leveraged our presence and logistics to deliver the supplies that hurricane victims so desperately needed. Hurricane Katrina changed Walmart forever, and it changed us for the better. We saw our full potential with absolute clarity to serve not just our customers, but our communities, our countries, and even the world. We saw our opportunity and our responsibility. In the aftermath of the storm, we asked ourselves, how can we be that company, the Walmart we were during Katrina, all the time? Sustainability became a big part of the answer. And so began one of the most unexpected and remarkable stories of corporate transformation. Scott soon announced three radical goals. First, to be supplied 100% by renewable energy. Second, to create zero waste. And third, to sell products that sustain people and the environment. Admittedly, they are described as aspirational with no timelines attached, but if they get anywhere close or even halfway there, they will have been a major catalyst for the post-industrial revolution. Already we see the Walmart effect of scalability in action in three areas, fish, cotton and light bulbs. Let's look at each in turn. Walmart plans to purchase all of its wild-caught, fresh and frozen fish for the US market from Marine Stewardship Council, or MSC, certified fisheries by 2011. They are also working with Global Aquaculture Alliance and Aquaculture Certification Council to certify that all foreign shrimp suppliers adhere to best aquaculture practice standards in the US by 2011. By 2009, they were already halfway there. Speaking to the Wall Street Journal, George Chamberlain, president of the Aquaculture Alliance, put the move in perspective. The endorsement drew attention. Walmart buys more shrimp than any other U.S. company, importing 20,000 tonnes annually, about 3.4% of U.S. shrimp imports. With Walmart's nod, we went from trying to convince individual facilities to become certified to having long waiting lines. Scott also made a commitment to phase out chemically treated textile crops. By 2008, Walmart was the largest buyer of organic cotton, with more than £10 million purchased annually. They are also the world's largest purchaser of conversion cotton, cotton grown without chemicals but waiting to be certified as organic. Scott is under no illusions about the ripple effects. He says... Cotton farmers can now invest in organic farming because they have the certainty and stability of a major buyer. Through leadership and purchasing power, all of us can create new markets for sustainable products and services. We can drive innovation. We can build acceptance. All we need is the will to step out and make the difference. Another product Scott targeted 
was green light bulbs. A compact fluorescent light bulb has clear advantages over the widely used incandescent light. It uses 75% less electricity, lasts 10 times longer, produces 450 pounds fewer greenhouse gases from power plants, and saves consumers $30 over the life of each bulb. But it is eight times as expensive as a traditional bulb, gives off a harsher light, and has a peculiar appearance. As a result, the compact fluorescent bulbs only ever achieved 6% penetration, before Walmart, that is. To tip the scales in favour of compact fluorescence, Walmart set the goal of selling 100 million energy-saving light bulbs. Success would mean total sales in the US would double, saving Americans $3 billion in electricity costs and avoiding the need to build additional power plants for the equivalent of 450,000 new homes. To ram home the point about Walmart's mighty sway, according to the New York Times, when they proposed this audacious goal, light bulb manufacturers who sell millions of incandescent lights at Walmart immediately expressed reservations. In a December 2005 meeting with executives from General Electric, Walmart's largest bulb supplier, the message from GE was, don't go too fast, we have all these plants that produce traditional bulbs. The response from the Walmart buyer was uncompromising. We are going there. You decide if you are coming with us. Unsurprisingly, General Electric decided to tool up and scale up to meet the demand. Today, these and other initiatives are all part of Walmart's sustainability 360-degree program. Compounding the scalability effect is the fact that Walmart plans to take its more than 100,000 suppliers along with it on this sustainability journey. In 2009, it announced the creation of a worldwide sustainability product index. Step one was providing each of its suppliers with a survey of 15 simple but powerful questions to evaluate their own company's sustainability in four areas energy and climate, natural resources, material efficiency, and people and community. Step two is to develop a global database of information on the life cycle of products to be shared on a public platform. And step three will be to translate the findings into a simple, convenient, easy-to-understand rating so customers can make choices and consume in a more sustainable way. Walmart is not second-guessing what these assessments, measures and information systems will look like. However, it has said that by 2012, all direct import suppliers will be required to source 95% of their production from factories that receive one of Walmart's two highest ratings in audits for environmental and social practices, including standards of product safety, quality and energy efficiency. In February 2010, it also committed to reducing 20 million metric tons of carbon pollution from its products life cycles and supply chains over the next five years. That's equivalent to eliminating the annual greenhouse gas emissions from 3.8 million cars by 2015. To be sure, Walmart still has plenty of critics. Of its sustainability index, its labor practices, its supply chain performance and its Goliath tactics. 
But to borrow from the Marvel comic-adapted movie Transformers, it is getting harder and harder to cast Walmart as the evil Megatron, which is part of the Decepticon race, and far more plausible to see it as Optimus Prime, an awesomely powerful yet ultimately well-intentioned Transformer. The moral of the Walmart story is that it is making sustainability and responsibility scalable. Scott's take on it is that, more than anything else, we see sustainability as mainstream. We believe working families should not have to choose between a product they can afford and a sustainable product. That is nothing short of the CSR holy grail, and the jury is still very much out, especially since Scott's stepped down in 2009, but if anyone can tip us into the age of responsibility, it's the new sustainability superpower, Walmart.